And uh, we're going to go to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And I'm going to read from verse 1. Acts 15 from verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp disputes and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, we're going fairly fast paced through the book of Acts. And that's, of course, the story. It's the story of the early church. And we now reach, actually, a very critical moment in the story of the early church. And as I hope we'll see, actually, a critical moment for all church and Christian history. And that is the council that takes place at Jerusalem. Up to this point, the early church has been making really significant advance. First, Jews had become believers and then increasingly many more Gentile, non-Jewish converts were coming in to the church. The Apostle Paul had begun his church-planting ministry, which was to see churches planted all over the Roman Empire. But at this point, probably the most influential and certainly the most numerous church was actually Antioch, which was the third city of the Roman Empire. 
And the Apostle Paul is not actually based in Jerusalem, he's based in the church in Antioch. And suddenly in Antioch, there's a crisis. So let's look first of all at trouble in the church. Now, Antioch was a mega church. I don't know who decreed that 2,000 people constitute a mega church, but someone's decreed it and everybody seems to accept it which means actually even within our family of churches, New Frontiers, we do have one mega church. That's in Enfield in North London, which has over 2,000 people now attending. And uh, one day we're going to be a mega church, amen? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Antioch was far in excess of 2,000. In fact, it's believed that the church at Antioch may have grown to 100,000 people. It was a hugely significant church. Now, Paul and Barnabas had done a lot of teaching there to establish all the new converts that were coming into the church and to get the church on good foundations. So Antioch was in a good place. It was a growing church. It was a big church. Paul and Barnabas were based there. And then suddenly, trouble. And it's summarized there in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And so here were some people who were bringing in a different teaching that those who were non-Jews, the uh, Bible calls them Gentiles, if uh, they were going to be true Christians, they not only had to believe in Jesus, but they also had to be circumcised. And this brings a big row between those teachers and the apostles Paul and Barnabas. Now, we need to understand that Christians and churches are involved in spiritual conflict. If you don't believe that there is a devil, then just become a church leader. Churches come under attack, and sometimes attacks come after a time of major blessing. Individual believers, too, have to go through what the Bible sometimes, or sometimes go through what the Bible calls evil days. And these are seasons of brutal attack when everything seems to be conspiring against the individual believer. And very often that can also come after a time of blessing. Interestingly, Jesus himself is the model here. You remember that Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came upon him, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. You remember what happened next? In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan where he'd been baptized and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So even Jesus knew that. It's a time of great blessing and baptism, the approval of his Father, and then suddenly he's in a time of major temptation. And as individual believers, when that happens to us, we have to stand firm as who we are as children of God. That's what Jesus did. He stood firm on his sonship when the devil came against him and tempted him. Can I say, I think that's what Matt and Hannah did a few days ago when they went through their trial. If you read what they were saying, even when the operation that was going on of their daughter, they stood firm in their faith and in the sense of being children of God. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble. And when trouble comes, we need to stand firm as children of God. But churches, too, can have a time of blessing, and then they can hit a time of trouble. And a golden rule, when it happens for the church, is this. Do something. 
don't just sweep it under the carpet. Some churches go through a period of trouble, they keep sweeping it under the carpet, and in the end, the members can't even walk on the carpet because it's so bumpy. Right? You've got to actually do something. And the church at Antioch did something. And that is they sent Barnabas and Paul to Jerusalem so they could go there and consult with the other apostles and with the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So secondly, what's the issue? What was the issue? What is the issue? And we've seen it already in verse 1, that there were some who had come down from the region of Jerusalem, actually, to teach in Antioch that Gentile or non-Jewish Christians must not only have faith in Christ, that wasn't enough, they must also be circumcised and observe the Jewish law. In other words, they needed to become Jews as well as believers in Christ. And when Paul and Barnabas get to Jerusalem, exactly the same thing happens. Because they're now in Jerusalem in verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, these were converted Pharisees. Pharisees who believed on Jesus, but Pharisees were those who had been absolute sticklers for the law. They were the ones that really held up the law. They wanted everyone to be in perfect obedience to the law. Paul himself had actually been a Pharisee. In a way, these were good people. They were zealous for the law of God. But uh, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, these converted Pharisees somehow couldn't let go of the law. They wanted to take it with them and drag them, drag the law and circumcision into Christian faith and belief in Jesus. They still wanted people to keep the law, even if they had not come from a Jewish background. One commentator puts it really well. He says, concerning this, the Pharisee Christians banded together to make sure that no one slipped by Mount Sinai on the way to Calvary. It's very clever, because at Mount Sinai, the law was given, and no one was being allowed by these, uh, or these uh, Pharisee, Pharisaic Christians were wanting no one to be allowed to slip by the law uh, simply to go to the cross of Christ and avoid the law. So circumcision was being added to faith in Christ, and this is the issue. It was not a Jesus-only gospel, it was being made a Jesus-plus gospel. Faith in Christ was essential, absolutely. Nobody was denying that. The Pharisaic uh, Christians weren't denying that. Faith in Christ was essential, but you had to add to faith in Christ. And what they wanted to add was circumcision and the Jewish law. And so they were making it a Jesus-plus gospel. As the famous Bible teacher David Porsner said, add anything to faith and it becomes the means of salvation. So this was a very important issue. Now, circumcision is not our issue. But the issue of a Jesus plus gospel is our issue. Because over church history, again and again, this kind of idea has crept in that we need to believe on Jesus Christ, but you must add something to faith in Christ to be sure of salvation. Now, some of us may actually have grown up decades ago in the kind of situation or church life which was heavy with this kind of teaching and atmosphere. 
believe on Jesus, but there's a list of things that you must add to that that you mustn't do. And number one was you mustn't drink any alcohol. And then there were things like you mustn't go to the cinema or you should never go to a dance. Even you shouldn't wear lipstick or makeup. And all these things were kind of added on. I mean, this, this sort of teaching used to be there in the church years ago. And often it was given by very good people in a way. People who were zealous. They wanted uh, to bring people through to a holy life in Jesus. And they kind of got carried away with this kind of teaching. But basically, it is a Jesus plus gospel. This is the list that you must add to faith in Christ. Now, I think in churches like this, we've understood the message of grace. We know that God has taken initiative towards us. He saves us by his grace. And actually, the means of being saved by grace is that we trust by faith in Christ alone. But it's amazing how attitudes that want to make a Jesus plus gospel still creep in. And so I had a friend, a pastor friend, who some years ago went to another country, a rather more conservative culture than ours, but where the message of grace was being preached, and it was being preached and it was being received, but he was with a group of leaders teaching them, and he mentioned how on the previous Sunday he'd baptised a guy in his church who had dyed his hair blue. And there was uproar amongst this group of leaders. I mean, how could this guy be a Christian if he dyed his hair blue? I mean, the funny thing was, if their wives had dyed their hair blonde or brunette, they'd have been entirely happy, I'm sure. But because this guy dyed his hair blue, it was almost as though you had to doubt his salvation. And that was even in an atmosphere where grace was being taught. It's amazing how people get ideas of what you need to add to a Jesus-only gospel. What do we add to a Jesus-only gospel? What do you think we add? I don't, I don't want us to fight yesterday's battles or kind of just suggest that we're fighting yesterday's battles because I don't think we are. But I do think this sometimes, we can add our personal opinion. And I think we can say, well, I'm not really sure about him because he's not doing this. And we kind of get a personal opinion that we add on about people. But then I think it can also kick back on ourselves I've had conversations over the years as a pastor with really good people who are insecure about their faith. And the reason they're insecure about their faith is because they feel they haven't done enough to be sure. And I want to be honest here this morning and say, I've felt that at times. And I've had feelings where I'm thinking, I hope God lets me live a bit longer so I can prove that I am a Christian. You can get these kind of feelings. And in us, it's easy to have a feeling we must do more to be sure. Uh, and uh, we fail to recognize, perhaps, that the people who do most in the Christian life are usually those that are sure. They're the ones that tend to do most. But we can have this feeling that we need to do more to be sure. And I think the danger, therefore, of a Jesus plus gospel is always with us. So this was the issue, and it's a huge issue. Is it faith in Christ alone, or is it faith in Christ plus something? And this is what leads to the council at Jerusalem. So they have a lot of discussion, and then Peter stands up. Uh, Peter, of course, never short of a word to say, always got a strong opinion. And what Peter does is to remind the apostles and elders that uh, previously God had called him to go and preach to the 
to the, the, the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he, he went to a Roman centurion called Cornelius, and Cornelius gathered his family and his friends, and Peter preached the gospel of God's grace to them. And this family and these friends and Cornelius all believed on Jesus Christ and were filled with the Holy Spirit. There was no demand made upon them for circumcision and the Jewish law. And uh, Peter sums it up there in verse 11. He says, no, it, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. In other words, Peter says, faith in Christ alone. You don't add to that. No circumcision, no law. And then next up are Paul and Barnabas. And surprisingly, there's only one verse summarizing what Paul and Barnabas said. But I can imagine Luke, the author of Acts, sitting there writing this account and saying, well, everybody knows what Paul thinks. And so he, he sums it up in just one verse. But what Paul and Barnabas do is to remind the, the uh, council at Jerusalem that God had also worked through them to the Gentiles. And in fact, God had so worked through them that he'd actually supported their preaching of the gospel with signs and miracles and wonders. And Gentiles were flooding in to the church all over the Roman Empire with no demand for circumcision or for the law. That wasn't being imposed upon them. And so these apostles argue, do not add to the grace of God. And again and again in church history, this battle has to, had to be refought. And so it was fought again in the time of the Reformation, 500 years ago, with Martin Luther and men like him. One occasion, a senior Roman Catholic priest said to Martin Luther, if you take away the relics and pilgrimages and prayers to the dead saints and all the devotional practices, what will you put in their place? And Luther thundered back, Christ, man only needs Jesus Christ. And that is the teaching of the Bible. That is how Paul explains the gospel in letters like the one he wrote to the church at Rome. All that is needed is faith in Christ alone. Because, my friends, not just as some kind of mantra, because what Jesus has done at Calvary means everything that is necessary for our salvation has been done and has been achieved. And so on Christ, all our sins, past, present and future, have been laid. Jesus has carried those away. He's, he's, every, every charge against us has been nailed to the cross of Christ. And Christ took our place and he took our punishment, and he took our sin, and he took our condemnation. He took everything with him there on the cross. And the idea that you can add to the cross with circumcision, or by not wearing makeup, or by not dyeing your hair blue, is ridiculous. Doing more won't do it. But I think for some of us, our biggest battle in the Christian life is to break our reliance on what we've done or what we are doing. We actually need to be delivered from our good works, in a sense, in order to be saved. Otherwise, we have a Jesus plus gospel. No, it's Christ alone because of what he has done. And only that can bring us the assurance that will give us joy and freedom. Uh, therefore, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. And listen to the way that Paul puts this uh, in another epistle. If you go to uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verses 8 and 9, this is a wonderful statement of a Jesus-only gospel where Paul says that... uh, Uh, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. That's the law and everything. He considers that garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So, we go to the result of the Council of Jerusalem. And finally, in this great debate that takes place in Jerusalem, it probably went on for many hours because we've only got a very brief uh, uh, description or summary of it here, finally James addresses the assembly. Now, this James is not one of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose. He's not one of the original 12 apostles. In fact, that James, who was the brother of John, has by this time in the story already been put to death in a time of persecution. So it's not that James that we're talking about, but this James is the brother of Jesus, or strictly speaking, the half-brother of Jesus, Mary being the mother of Jesus and also of James. Probably by now he is recognized as an apostle, and it seems that he had become leader of the Jerusalem church. And so what James does is to sum up all that's been said and to bring the final judgment. <clears throat> in doing so, and you can read it in verses 16 to 18, he gives a quotation from the Old Testament. So in giving his judgment, he actually makes his judgment something that is based on Scripture. So that's a a safe way of making a judgment. And in the verses that he quotes from the Old Testament, he makes it clear that there will be, and this has been said prophetically in the Old Testament, there will be a work of salvation among the Jews. That is a reference in verse 16 to the rebuilding of David's fallen tent. I can't get into detail on this, but insofar as, in a sense, Israel had always been in some form of collapse after the time of David, a time was going to come when God actually would restore people by, uh, from the Jewish race by drawing people to salvation through Jesus Christ. There's going to be a rebuilding of David's fallen tent. But more importantly, as far as the Jerusalem council is concerned, the Gentiles will also come to salvation. That is prophetic prophetically stated there in the Old Testament. It's in verse 17. The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Which is actually a reference back to what Simon Peter uh, has actually said. And you can read that there in verse 14. Peter described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. So it's there prophetically in the Old Testament that the Gentiles, non-Jews, would come in to the saving purposes of God. And so James makes his judgment, 
quotes the Old Testament, quotes that prophecy, and he says, we are not going to go against the word of God by making things difficult for the Gentiles who are now turning to God. In other words, there is going to be no demands on these new Gentile believers for circumcision. And all adult believing men since the Council of Jerusalem have said, Amen and Hallelujah. <laughs> but here was a clear gospel truth. And it's laid down for all time since the Council of Jerusalem. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. And that has been, as it were, forever stated since the Council of Jerusalem. But then James continues, and you kind of wish he didn't. I don't know if any of you who've looked at this passage before have felt that. And what James goes on to say is that uh, he will ask the Gentile converts not to eat food offered to idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, and not to eat meat with blood in it. In other words, that's the Jewish kosher diet. And we can start thinking, hey, he's starting to add things again to a Jesus-only gospel. This sounds like a Jesus-plus gospel again. Now, I've got to handle this very carefully, and I'm going to do it by way of an illustration. And I hope and believe this illustration will convey the truth to you. I want you to imagine I give you a bike. Now, this bike is uh, really one of the best. It's a very expensive bike. It's made from all the latest lightweight materials, uh, and it's got all the gearing, etc. It's a brilliant bike. And I'm saying to you, this is your bike. I'm giving it to you. You can have it absolutely for free. But whenever you ride it, I'm asking you to wear a T-shirt. You've got to do this. And this T-shirt will advertise Marmite. Right? And you've got to wear this every time you ride the bike. I think you would soon realize that this bike is not quite as free as it seems. Because you're having to pay for it by advertising every time you ride it. And you hate the stuff anyway. I mean, you don't like Marmite. Uh, you loathe the stuff. If the offer of salvation is free, but you must be circumcised, or you must add a list of things that you mustn't do, or other things that we've mentioned, then in some way you are paying for your salvation, and it becomes a Jesus plus gospel. Go back to my bike. I give you the bike. There is absolutely no demand for any advertising. You haven't got to wear a T-shirt. It is your bike. You have it. There it is. It's your bike. It's for free. But I say to you, when you use it, would you please wear a cycle helmet and please don't ride on the pavement? Now, think about this. You aren't paying for it. What you are doing is responsibly using your freedom that has now come to you because you can ride this bike. And a helmet will help to keep you safe. Not riding on a pavement will help to keep other people safe. Now, James isn't reinventing a Jesus plus gospel. What James is doing is saying, please be wise with your freedom. 
Don't give the pagans a chance to point the finger and say, oh, look at the meat that they're eating. They obviously believe in our gods as well. Don't give them that chance to do that. He's also saying, don't mess up your freedom and the freedom of other people's lives by getting into sync with the modern culture and into all sorts of sexual immorality. Don't use, don't use your freedom to do that. And he's also saying, look, we've got Jewish converts in our churches, and they're struggling still to get free of the law, and they still want to observe the, the Jewish dietary laws. Hey, how about respecting them and honouring them and just going with that at the present time? So what James is doing is not making a Jesus plus gospel which will equal salvation, but he is saying to them, take care how you exercise your freedom in Christ. Friends, we do that. So, for example, if uh, somebody was to come to my house who had become a Christian, but he was a converted alcoholic, there's no way I'm going to open a bottle of wine and start drinking it myself, let alone offer one to him. It's actually something we observe corporately here every Sunday when we take communion. Sure, we could, we could drink alcoholic wine in communion, but we don't want to cause difficulty for someone for whom that might be a difficulty. And so we observe our freedom responsibly. We could do it, we could drink alcoholic wine, but we, we want to, as it were, respect others and treat our freedom in a, or use our freedom in a way that shows that respect. And so this was the judgment that James brought at the Jerusalem Council and everyone was very grateful. Now, the passage that we're looking at this morning actually does run on, and the passage it was set to verse 35, but I knew I wouldn't have time to go through the detail of that, but I can summarize it for you very, very quickly. With the Council of Jerusalem, it is decided that they will write a letter to the church at Antioch and other churches, and they will send this letter via some of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, including Paul and Barnabas. And so they will take this letter and it will, as it were, underline James' judgment at the Council of Jerusalem so that all the other churches, especially those churches that have got many Gentile converts, can read it and see what the judgment is. So that's what happens. The letter is written and Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch with some of the leaders from the church of Jerusalem with the letter. And this letter spells out the judgments at the Council of Jerusalem. It's all summed up in verse 31. The people read it and were glad for the encouraging message. In other words, the crisis was over. And Antioch was again happy church because they knew that the gospel that they believed in demanded only faith in Christ alone. It wasn't a Jesus plus gospel. So the big question, my friends, is this. Are we happy church at Gateway? Don't sound very sure. You think we're happy church at Gateway? <laughs> we're not preaching a Jesus plus gospel. All right? We really aren't. Sometimes you might hear things that might make it sound a bit like that to you, but what we're probably doing is saying to you, look, this is how to exercise your freedom in Christ. We believe that by the grace of God, Jesus Christ and him alone is all that we need to believe in. Not as some kind of name only, not as some kind of mantra, because of what Jesus did through the cross and the resurrection. He accomplished everything that is necessary for our salvation. 
So here, a gateway church, we lift up the name of Jesus Christ. We lift up the cross of Jesus Christ. We say, friends, if you want to be saved, we would ask you to turn to Christ and to him alone and to believe on him and his saving work that he accomplished through the cross and through his resurrection. It's a Jesus-only gospel. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen? Amen. Let's just pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you uh, so much that uh, this gospel is so liberating, Lord. We know the temptation to want to add to the gospel and say, you've got to do this to be saved or do that to be saved. We can even put the pressure on ourselves, Lord, and think we must be doing more to be sure. But we thank you for the liberation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that by the grace of God, Christ is revealed to us, and we see that he bears our sin, he takes our punishments, he takes our condemnation. We trust him and him alone. And as we look to him, we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to keep our focus there, keep our worship there, keep our witness there. Father, we pray that when we turn in on ourselves and think, I've got to do this to be saved, 